stories are the software of our lives. We as the humans, the hardware, need an upgrade of our spiritual software, our stories, our wisdom more than ever. Each of these episodes will be like a performance psychologist, philosopher, religious professor, and a monk walked into a bar and had a conversation. It's just me on this podcast because that's the weird conversation that's happening in my brain. I'll be drawing from other wisdom traditions, but each episode will be drawing from one main tradition, the Bible. I'll be drawing from 40 stories. And as I look at these 40 stories, I'll be distilling it down so that you can find the wisdom you need to help upgrade your story wherever you find yourself. The polycontemplative approach is not dedicated to any belief system or ideology. It's an invitation for all of us to pay attention to wisdom that's been passed down our way for thousands of years and learn from it in a new, fresh way today. Welcome to Polycontemplative number two. Glad you're here. As you heard about in the intro, this project is just my weird attempt to start a conversation looking at some stories that give us wisdom. Now, in the context that I live in, um, even though we've worked with different people all over the world, the stories that have shaped so much of the West have come from the Hebrew uh, scriptures and then the, the New Testament or the Christian scriptures. And so we're using stories from the Bible, not because I want to bolster any kind of superstition. I'm actually not interested in any kind of ideology, any uh, Republican or conservative or Democrat or liberal or atheist or, or Christian or any of that. Instead, what I want to do is take out the wisdom. I want holistic cognitive activation. So we looked at three ancient stories in the first episode that really encapsulate kind of a big beginning story and and the wisdom that we can glean from it about what it means to understand that humans have to work through their shame. And as they work through their shame, they've got to make sure they're eating from the tree of uh, not the knowledge of good and evil, just thinking, but the tree of life where they're actually living. And then when that happens, it translates well to our community where whole people or if we don't, we are like the Cain and the Abel. We are we are Cain resenting and hating. And until you can turn the resentment and hate you have towards another into your own transformation, you'll always be held back. Now, that is, you know, the reason that was episode one is because that's such a baseline idea. What we're shifting to now in this episode is understanding what happens as individuals change and grow. And to do that, I want to look at two characters Samuel and Eli. And Samuel and Eli represent an important moment in the progression of human consciousness. And I don't mean to overstate that or, uh, or I don't mean to, to state that too strongly in a way that I think is inflated. I mean, this is a huge moment. And again, you've got to ask yourself, you know, why are these stories here? Because stories, we were, we were remembering stories well before we were, we were able to write things down. In fact, some studies have shown that our memories may have worked better than as we embedded everything in these multiple poems that we sat around the fire and we could remember over and over and over again. That's why the story we looked at in episode one, it was a poem, right? The beginning, the creation piece here. It's not about a literal time frame. So what we're understanding now is these stories, have, have held sway for a reason. And if we just throw out the wisdom of the story because we can't think critically, we're going to miss out on something. So Samuel and Eli represent a massive shift. And here's, here's the shift. You know, up to this point, you can look at different societies and see how they're progressing. Really, the, the God or gods become a container for how they process consciousness. Um, 
I think it was Odin in the Norse uh, religion where he had two birds on his shoulder, uh, thoughts and memories, if I'm remembering correctly. And those two birds clearly represented their way of trying to understand how the brain works and how consciousness works. Um, some of you are familiar with Joseph Campbell, how he put stages to how we transform and grow. And, and maybe you're familiar with who influenced him which was Carl Jung, uh, you're maybe not as uh, inf- um, aware of Eric Newman, who was also influenced by Carl Jung. So Carl Jung really influenced Eric Newman and, and Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell put stages to it, which is why you know his name. Eric Newman didn't, but he did write a book, uh, Origins of Human Consciousness, if I remember the title correctly. Really profound book for those of you that may be interested that looks at how consciousness and, and religions developed as humans could express and expand their thinking, the religion became a container to hold the expression of that thinking. So what we have happening here in Samuel and Eli's story, which is so fascinating to me, is it's, it's, a, it's a shift in, into a new era. So as their consciousness developed, the concept of God developed. You can see this through the Hebrew scriptures. You know, at some points they're like, our God is the God of all the gods. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to make an argument. They're trying to make a statement. At some point, then it changes to our God is the only God. So you can actually see how this changes in the Hebrew scriptures and, and what shifts in the way that they talk about it. And part of the way that this was developing, they, they have a temple now where the idea is you go worship at this temple. It was a tabernacle first. And, and so this is like this portable temple and the leader then, of that obviously has tons of influence. Why? Well, because every part of a person's life at that point oriented around a collective, a shared worldview. That's, that's what's happened in society over and over. In fact, when society breaks for a little bit, it's because the collective worldview starts to fracture. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. So as Samuel is engaging a process with Eli, and and who is Eli? Eli leads the temple. Samuel is a boy that was dropped off to work at the temple. So Eli represents the strength, the power, the tradition. Think about the people that have influenced you the most. Some of them you know, right? The people that raised you, the people you love the people that care for you, or the people that should have cared for you but didn't. It could be people that hurt you. Maybe you can think about these major influences in your life, a teacher that really impacted you in a negative or a positive way. What's it like for you to really start to pay attention and deconstruct narratives that have occurred in society that have influenced you to to perceive, I should do this or I shouldn't do that? All of us, without awareness, have been very much shaped by the Eli's in our life. We could think about the Eli's like they're an institution. What they're doing for us, what they're shaping in us is their thoughts and beliefs about what it means to be in the world, to show up, to live, to grow, to to be a human. And for most of human history, what's happened is the institution, even if it's, you know, a, a remote tribal village of 25 people, the institution, whatever the hierarchy that's built into that grouping, transfers to you a worldview. They say, 
This is how you live. This is where you fit in. These are the stages and progressions of growth that you're going to go through. Here's the rites and the rituals that you complete so that you can move from being a participant in this community to a contributor, the childhood to adulthood. So rites of passage, you know, all of these things are transferring this to you. And and then you've got a very clear code for what it means to be in that world, to live well in that world, to play according to the rules of that world. Like we talked about in episode one with Cain and Abel, that, you know, these games, these status games are always there. And until we transcend the status games where we're trying to get what we need from someone else, we do violence to one another. Well, you've got plenty of violent societies throughout human history. Now, what's a a really powerful moment here is as the, the Hebrew people have progressed and as they think about God in these different ways, they've got this system now in place to transfer the rituals to other people. And Samuel, this boy, is working with Eli, who represents all this strength, all this tradition, all this influence, all this power. And this is where the story gets really good. So Samuel, the best we know, maybe is about a nine-year-old boy at this point. And he comes to Eli. Eli, who represents the strength, the tradition, the power. I'm going to use a word again, institution. Institutions are just... The, the relational groupings that formalize the passing on of a worldview, view, of a behavioral code, all of the things that we've talked about. Samuel comes to Eli and says to him, you called for me. And Eli says, no, no, I didn't call for you. He comes to him a second time. Hey, what'd you want? You called for me? Eli says to Samuel, no, I didn't call for you. Samuel comes to him a third time. Hey, Eli, what do you want, man? Eli says, oh, I didn't call for you. And then Eli does something so profound and powerful. He says to Samuel, I haven't called for you. You need to go lay down and say, here I am, God speak. Whoa. This little moment, so massive and so huge. What Eli could have done is what most unhealthy institutions do. He could have said, I did call for you. And here's what it means to be a good Israelite. Do these three things. You know, this happens all the time. You know, ask, ask society. Hey, society, I'm graduating high school. What do I need to do now? Well, there's an institutional narrative. You need to go to college, even if it means getting a lot of debt, even if it means getting a degree that isn't going to be worth anything, whatever that is. Am I anti-college? No. I just want you to be aware. I want you to be aware of the institutional narratives, the way the politics cycle works. You know, you got to vote for the politician that's going to get you a job. Well, why do you need to think about work that way? (laughs) I don't want to take you too deep down this rabbit hole and slow us down from the main idea, but so much of what's around us is our institutional narratives. You know, do I pay attention to the clock? Sure. Can I look over and see what time it is? Even right now, yeah, but the hours are determined by the Romans. The minutes are determined by monks. It's all made up. Who says it's the day it is and the time it is? What we've divorced ourselves from is an awareness of who we are, where we are, our energy, our focus, 
what it means to bring who we are into what we do in a very clear way, because these shoulds and should nots begin to crowd out our lives. And maybe for you, the institutional narrative is simply as you uh, own or lead a business, or you're trying to lead some initiative at work, and you're constantly comparing yourself yourself to other stories, and you're drawing from their narrative what you think should be true in your narrative. And so, you know, print media, whatever it is, all of these million points of advice and articles and what you should do and shouldn't do. Do I like to learn from those? Sure. But until I understand what's happening, that if I am taking their voice and not hearing what's in me for my voice, then I'm going to never know who I really am and what my life can really be and what it means for me to be on the path I need to be. Soren Kierkegaard uh, had, a, had a statement or a quote that I think is so powerful here. Life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be lived. That's why we started off in episode one with this tension between eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil or the tree of life. M- most people are eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. They're just thinking about living. They're not really living. They're trying to constantly evaluate. They're constantly trying to solve the problem. They're not taking the next step out of the truth of who they are. Look, it doesn't really matter to me whether you believe in God or not. It doesn't matter how you think about that terminology. I want you to know what was so powerful is that Eli said to Samuel, go lay down and find the voice inside of you. That's what he's saying that's so powerful. You know, some of you have had experiences with religions where you came to that religion or you went to that church service and you were like, man, something's changing in my life. Here I am, speak. And it helped you for a while. And that was great and it was powerful. But at some point you begin to push against the structure of it. And as you begin to push against the structure of it, maybe not even actively, you just started to believe or think differently. The structure said, no, that's not what a good mature person does. And you were like, but no, I think I'm being invited here. I think I'm being drawn here. I think there's a voice pulling me here. I think there's something happening in me that this North Star is emerging and, and I can't fight against this, but it didn't fit the institution. And so some of you stuff that down. And this is how we become, you know, such negative stereotypes of whatever it is the religion that we seek to say is so powerful. I mean, how is it the people that are dedicated to compassion and love and kindness end up hiding some of the darkest secrets that sabotage their lives and become very mean because at some point, They just stopped listening to the voice. They stopped hearing what was in there. And and some of you, maybe you even tried to transform some of those places and found out the ones that wanted to transform and didn't. And and some of you just left because you said, I got to go. I got to graduate beyond this. You know, if we're going to go even deeper into this in our episode three, but, but if I can describe a God that you can now grow, well, that sucks. I don't want to reach the edge of my imagination or my potential as a human, as how much I can grow. And whatever image I have of the sacred, if I can imagine something more than where I'm currently at, I can be drawn into that vision and inspired by it. If I can't, then I'm stuck. Now, when we talk about the voice, we know this. We know this deep down. You have an inner critic. You have a shame uh, voice. To go back to episode one, you have a narrator who's speaking this movie to you in your life in a way that's tearing you down. And maybe you've never like actively heard it. Look, can we avoid the 
the side path here on what it means to actively hear voices. The brain is a tricky, weird thing. And for much of human society, when people heard voices, we let them go fight their wilderness out in or or fight their uh, intense battles in their brain out in the wilderness. And if they could survive those, they would come back and they would be the priests and they would be the shamans and they would be the Moses and they would be, and we're going to talk about Moses. You know, when, when, when you got that raging war inside your head, you go out in the wilderness, you fight it, you come back and you help lead us. If you don't come back, it's because you didn't win that battle. The last couple hundred years, that's not how we've done it. We've said, instead, you don't have normal brain function, so we're going to lock you up. And I do think there's got to be a better way. Um, I do recognize, I've been on the locked floors of hospitals with people that, that need support and help when that break from reality is occurring. It's intense and it's, and it's real. So I want to be careful here to say that I'm not talking about actively, you know, hearing voices in a way that creates a dangerous place for your life. I am not a doctor. I don't pretend to be one. I'm not a psychologist. I don't pretend to be one. I'm not a counselor. I don't pretend to be one. I'm just trying to draw some wisdom from these stories. But I am saying, you know what it's like to be driven by some inadequacy or comparison or or the fear of what you're afraid people might find out about who you are. We all do. And, and for most people, they've never isolated that voice and drawn it out and paid attention to it. I remember for me, the first time it happened, and I've told this story in, in some of my books and in some of the courses and programs that I do, so I don't want to talk about it too much here, but it was just a moment where I became aware of, of, of a shaming narration in my life that told me I wasn't enough and I had to convince people that I'm awesome. And I'm not saying it was like an active voice that I heard. But when you really tap into awareness on this, it's like louder than a voice. It's this quiet whisper that that can can shake you. And we've got lots more we're going to cover on that in other episodes. I'm tempted to get into it now. But Samuel had to find the voice. Am I talking about the shaming narrator? No, I'm talking about the voice beyond that, the truth of who you are. Really, your, your internal life is like a a war of three voices. The two that are at the surface, one is the the things that you're afraid people are thinking or saying about you or feeling about you. So you have this projection where you try to prove something to others or you hide who you are. That shaming narrator, when you can hear it at the second level, it's just a direct confrontation against your identity. You're bad. They're going to find out you're an imposter. You don't measure up. They're not impressed with you. You're broken. You're dysfunctional. You don't belong. You don't fit in. They're going to take advantage of you. Everybody that I've ever worked with in all kinds of societies and different uh, countries has that projection that's there, the proving or hiding. If they can get to the deeper level, that's the shaming narrator. But what we're talking about right now is what's even beneath that, the truth of who you are, the true voice, the intuition, the honed intuition of your wisdom. That's there. That's the voice. Now, in this story, it's talked about the voice of God. I want to tell you about a book for some of you that I just think you might find fascinating. I saw uh, Michael Pollan reference it on Twitter. He's written a lot about uh, food and recently has written a book about how to change your mind. But he said this book, he called it uh, 
I forget now, mind-blowing maybe. I'll hold it up for those watching on video. If you're just listening to the audio, you won't see it, so I'll read it to you. It's The Flip by Jeffrey Kripal. It's, it's, not, a, you know, it's not a simple read. It's not too, too hard. But I think it's just a powerful book to say, hey, if you're at a place where you're wondering if there's more, there's some good stuff there on, on wondering about if there's more. And I want you to check that out. For me personally, as I engage this story, I look at the institutions that have taken me somewhere beautiful, but not been able to take me as far as I'd want to go. I've looked at, I've even seen some institutions in my life that have taken me, taken me places that aren't helpful, that not only did they have an end point, they had a place they were taking me that wasn't good. And when I learn to get below everything to that true voice of who I am, you can call it the voice of God. You can call it your truth. You can call it your wisdom. That's where you find everything. You get your internal guidance system. You access your wisdom. You access your best creative state. Now, we need to say about this story that what if everybody just goes, I got to follow what's in me. Isn't, isn't an, uh, an approach to individualism like this dangerous? Well, that's why throughout human history, the wisdom has been test the spirits. You got to test the spirits. That's actually a, a phrase from the New Testament. It's actually also what's been embedded into the ritual practices of society. You come back to the elders with your vision and go, here's what I got. What's powerful about this story is Eli tells Samuel, hey, go lay down, go find that vision. What happens when an institution is unhealthy, they can't ever let you go. You come to them and say, hey, I'm here. Did you call for me? And I think, you know, let's use the modern evangelical church. And I'm not trying to rail against it. It can be a starting point and helpful for people. But I also think in today's climate, they've um, there's just a lot of brokenness there. Because they'll say to somebody, yeah, we did call for you. You come to a service regularly. You attend a small group. You serve here. You give money to us. And then you're mature. No, maturity is defined by how quick you come back to that center. The point of an institution isn't to give you external markers for what it looks like for you to fulfill their code. The point of an institution is to become an adjusted, developed, healthy individual. I think about it like Charles Baudelaire, uh, French poet, you know, genius is the recovery of the childhood at will with the skill of adulthood. A healthy institution helps you advance in adulthood maturity, keeping the wonder and awe of the child. It helps you fully lean into the left brain in its thinking and discerning capacity, but led by a fully activated right brain where it's receiving inspiration and creative idea. And so what it means to be a healthy individual experiencing a healthy institution like Samuel and Eli is to find the voice, but to be able to to, to experience it as the right brain, but with the left brain to test the spirits. So unhealthy institutions don't hand you off to that process. Unhealthy, we talk about parenting. I mean, my kids right now at their ages, as I record this, are 14, 16, and 17. Our process in their life is not to lock in on them and say, this is what we believe and you got to think like us. No, it's to position them to leave. That's what healthy leadership does. It's as old as the ancient stories of time and it's as new as Star Wars where Luke says to Yoda, I got to go. My friends are hurting. I got to help them. 
Yoda didn't want him to go. He wasn't being a good Eli in that moment, but he eventually did, you know, embrace Luke's journey, which is great. But the healthy Eli would say in that moment, yeah, you do. You got to follow what's there. But for those that are learning to pay attention to that voice, you got to test the spirits. The left brain, the scaffolding, the infrastructure has to support it. An unhealthy institution can't hand you off to the voice of what is your journey and what is for you to experience. An unhealthy institution can't see you take that path. An unhealthy institution also resists what you come back with as a vision. You know, and when they resist it, it may mean for you that you've got to leave. I mean, it's as simple as a, a child coming to their parent who's wrestled with their, you know, adulthood dreams and said, Hey, I know I was supposed to take this business from you and lead it, but I gotta go over here. A healthy institution as parents will set them up to find their own journey and help them do that. And then when they do it, they will support it. Now, obviously, that person has to process it well. They have to test the spirits. They have to think through it critically. And, and if the institution has been healthy, if the institution has been supportive of the person finding their own voice, then guess what? They get to be a part of the process and the conversation as the individual discerns the vision. You know, it's the, the Navajo Indian that goes away and starves. I think it's the, the Navajo uh, Native American that, uh, and I want to be sensitive to all people, language is changing, doing the best I can. I don't mean that callously or flippantly. Um, but I also don't want to be in a place that I'm, you know, afraid to be here in a flow state with you. But, but um, and I think even now they're saying first peoples, whatever, I get it. I don't mean any of this in any harmful way. So a Native American, a first people, goes away and has their vision quest. They starve, they come back, and then they present their vision to the elders. In one of the traditions, the elders would then act it out for them as a way of saying, you know, we support, we endorse your vision. If the vision was harmful to the community or harmful to an institution that was healthy, then that's where you're going to have some conflict. And they ha- that has to be walked through. That has to be applied and well understood. Well, that really takes us back to the Samuel Eli story because Samuel's vision that he gets is that as healthy as it is, as amazing as it is in the course of human history, I, you know, first instance that we have recorded that I know of, The institution hands the individual off to their growth and development. The institution doesn't tell the person who they've got to become. Even though Eli was so amazing that way, Samuel comes back to him, and the vision that he has is that Eli's been looking the other way with some of his stuff with his sons. And so the era of Eli's leadership is over. See, when when somebody gets that individual vision... And they come back to the community with it. Sometimes the community is going to protect you. Sometimes, because you, because you need help discerning the vision sometimes, sometimes the compu- community is going to come against it because you threaten the institution. And what a powerful thing here in this moment that Samuel's vision is that Eli's era is over. And, and let's just talk about the fact that this is a nine-year-old boy, best we know. I mean, the human capacity for... Growth and wisdom and development and change is amazing. Humans go through so much change. My work is dedicated to seeing humans grow and change, and I love it. Yet I'll also say most humans don't grow and change. 
They stop and they lock in. They over-identify with what they call their personality, which is just really a massive defense mechanism, usually developed pre-verbally at some point because of pain that they experienced that started to shape the projecting voice that they have about the proving and hiding that really instilled deeply the shaming narrator and amplified that voice in their life, blocking them from their true voice. Most people don't go through this process. They never discover it. They just live how the institution told them to live. But yet Samuel has the courage as a nine-year-old boy to do that. Guys, humans, I know this is big. It's a big project. It's got big passions behind it. Listen, humans, we've barely tasted how far we can become. However, how much ever kindness you imagine the human race having, we've got more. How much ever compassion you imagine us having, we've got more. How much ever strategy and savviness and awareness of human evil, we've got more. I mean, the fact of the matter is our institutions are broken and not helping us advance to the next stage of human consciousness for lots of reasons. We've got so many drawn to an extreme conservatism that sadly, and and this is very sad to me, over-imagines evil. It's why they fall into conspiracy theories and 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 dysfunctional defense mechanisms. But we've also got an extreme liberalism and an inability to imagine evil, to think that we can just enforce top-down systems and it's going to change the human heart, that we can, you know, that we can just force and end some kind of racism that happens in the human heart by, you know, outlawing certain language. That doesn't work either. I love the way we've progressed as humans, that we've ended slavery. That's awesome. And we've got so much more to go, but you can't just end racism. You can't because it has to happen in the individual. And so what we need is a vision of who we are as individuals, healthy and growing. And a lot of humans aren't going to grow and they're not going to change. But for those of you that are listening to this, I've seen the human potential for change over and over. It is amazing. I'm committed to it. I love it. And even though I know most humans won't change, all we need is some of us to go as far as we can in our compassion, as far as we can in our kindness, as far as we can in our ability to understand we've got to still be wise and and protect people and, and protect ourselves and have healthy boundaries because the human potential for evil based on shame is still there. And I don't want to be like the extreme right that lifts up certain identity markers, you know, better than others and, and over defends some glorious past that never existed. But I also don't want to rush headlong into some future where I think I can engineer top down circumstances and be naive to the fact that the human heart can go astray. So, so what are the, that the slaveries of our day that need to end, but we can also understand we can't just end racism in the human heart. Change has to still keep going on. Big project, big ideas, but it all comes back to the Samuel and Eli story because Samuel comes back to Eli and, and or Samuel's vision that he gets uh, interacts with Eli's life because it's an affront against where the institution is. And that's what's so dangerous about when an unhealthy institution resists the vision, even though the vision is what the institution needs to embrace. See, healthy institutions hand you off to find the voice. Healthy institutions also cooperate with the vision that the individual got, even if it means the institution needs to change. 
Again, not every vision the individual brings back is what the community needs to adopt because sometimes individuals can lead themselves astray. But many of the institutions that we see crumbling in our lifetimes right now, and I think we're seeing it in a massive way, and I think we'll only continue to see more of it, it's because somewhere along the way, the Eli's were unhealthy, and they said, yeah, I did call for you, and here's what you need to do. Here's the code. They didn't hand them off to the voice. The other thing that they've done is they've resisted what could have been the next iteration. They've resisted what could have been the next expression. The message was coming. They just didn't want to hear it. The individual needs transformation. That's the wisdom that we take from this story. But there's a symbiotic relationship to the institution. Now, you don't have to have a healthy institution to find your way. It helps. But for some of you that are hearing this, you've never had an Eli say to you as a Samuel, go find the voice. But I'm saying it to you. And you've heard it in different ways. Little whispers, little moments, little concerns that you've stuffed down. And, you know, if, if you're in a place that you've not ever tapped into that truth of who you are, that intuition, that center point, maybe you could ask yourself this, what am I doing to numb out from hearing it? In what way am I distracting myself from the things that bother me? We're going to look at one story about how you can gain wisdom on activating a vision in your life. And when we get to that story in one of these episodes, I'm going to show you the starting point for transformation. It's just paying attention to what you're bothered about. And if right now there's something that that makes you angry or tired or feel insignificant or jealous or helpless, there's a clue. There's a signal. And what a lot of us do is numb out from ever feeling that insignificance or that helplessness or that that jealousy or that rage. And we miss the voice because of it. To the degree that we numb out from feeling those unpleasant feelings is to the degree that we will not tap into the voice. Now, (laughs) by sharing that that way? Am I saying we should be dominated by our feelings? No. I don't want to in any way articulate, model, or endorse behavior that is dominated by an emotional state. That is a low-level way to live. But I also don't want to deny my emotional states. I want to be aware and learning. I want to feel them internally, notice them without having to act on them. This is how we train ourselves to pay attention and hear the voice. Feeling the feeling is the pathway to, I'm going to lay down and ask within myself, maybe I'll even say it out loud, speak, I'm listening. Speak, I'm listening. You know, there's a reason he lays down because there's something about letting it all go, setting it all down. I'm not going to strive. I'm not going to pressure. I'm not going to run from. I'm not going to force. I'm not going to hype. I'm going to simply be with. You know, there's a stated reality that we've been covering that I haven't um, drawn out and been very clear with that I want to do as we think about coming to a close on the wisdom we gain from this story. People see the vision before institutions do. See, this is how transformation works. Groups don't come up with innovations. Individuals do. The group can accentuate it and make it better. But there's a reason why I'm so passionately committed to the fact that you don't change the world from top-down systems. That's never worked and it's never going to work. 
you change the world through lots of micro communities that are getting healthy. And how do you have lots of micro communities getting healthy? Because there's lots of individuals who are learning how to be free of proving or hiding the insecure need that they have for validation, the scarcity mindset thinking that they have that causes them to take from others. And they become more of a giver than a taker. And they show up having found the voice, the voice of wisdom within themselves, the guidance, God, the Holy Spirit, whatever your terminology is, and they then can act on it. They become, they become the kinds of people who bring the transformation the institutions need. And it's the individuals that find that. And so I want you to make sure that you find it. And then one caution concern as we close down, once you've found it, you know what's going to happen to you. You're not done yet because you're going to face a test and the test is going to be this. And it's very simple. Are you going to be able to be the Eli for someone else? Are you going to be able to be the Eli for when they need that transformation? Because if you're not, the very evil that you may have experienced for some of you, you end up repeating. So just because you found your way and found that path, that voice, just know this. It's going to take an incredible amount of humility at some point in your life when somebody comes to you and says, you called for me and you say, yeah, I did. And then you start telling them how they should believe and behave. Or like a healthy Eli, you can say to them, no, I didn't. Go find your way and I'll champion it and support it. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode. Please feel free to rate and share the podcast with others. More importantly, I want to invite you to come to SightShift.com, S-I-G-H-T Shift.com. There, I'm obsessively focused on helping people with three problems. Number one, how to work on their worldview and make their own meaning. Number two, how to find their place in the world and move with a laser-focused mission. And number three, transcend status games and build the healthy community they want to be a part of. Through our platform of content, certified coaches, and community, we are transformational guides to help you find your wisdom. Join us at SightShift, S-I-G-H-T, Shift.com.